Good morning, Grace Church. I was mentioning to the preaching team that I, I like to look around the room before I speak. And the reason is because this isn't a paper that's being presented. This isn't a speech, right? This is a, a dialogical connection between the people of God and God's word through the mouth of the person who's speaking. This morning when I walked in, a brother in Christ said, inspire us. And I'm reminded of my favorite New Yorker magazine cartoon, which is the only thing I've ever read in the New Yorker magazine. But it's of a man sitting on his couch with a TV clicker in his hand, and he aims it at the television and points and says, inspire, inform, persuade, as he hits the clicker on the television. Folks, it is my desire this morning that we all of us walk away from here inspired, but not because of anything that I say, but because the power of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God preached and read and pondered by the people of God will change lives. You know, I'm going to pray in a minute, but I want to... uh, confess right off the bat that I had to scratch my head after I selected the topic of citizenship in heaven as my preaching task in this series on what is the church. This is part seven, and we have seen that the church is the people of God, it is the body of Christ, it is the household of God. We've seen that the church is a flock and a temple, and last week Paul spoke on the identity of the church as the pillar and buttress of the truth. But it seems to stretch our grammatical sense to say that the church is citizenship in heaven. Yet, as we will see, for the Philippians and for us as well, citizenship is more than just a useful credential. It's a place to stand. It's a key that unlocks many doors And it carries with it a weight of responsibility and a set of obligations that we cannot easily set aside. And one of my desires this morning is that we will come to praise the Lord that as a soldier by the name of Philip Nolan discovered, there is no such thing as a country of one. The key verse for our consideration, you should see it on a slide about now, I would think, is found on page 981 in your pew Bibles, and it's verses, chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. We will be reading from an expanded selection of scriptures as well. But to set this up, this is the key verse of the message today. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Let's pray. Father, it is our desire to be inspired this morning, not by words that I say, but by the power of your word through the Holy Spirit interacting with the heart of each of us. 
and what a fine line there is between inspiration and platitudes or exhausting, vacuous words. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will be present as I speak and more even that it would be present in the hearts of each of us hearing today. That our hearts would not be hardened. That where encouragement is needed, that it will flow from your word. Where challenge is needed, that it will flow. Where hardness of heart reigns, that there will be a merciful reign of your spirit toward a soft heart for us as we interact with your word. For those that are anxious this morning, Father, I pray for your peace to descend in utter mercy that our hearts may be pierced. In Jesus' name, amen. I have learned, by the way, that if ever I have a question to ask you, and I'm pretty sure that nobody will know the answer, somebody knows the answer. So here's a question as I begin this morning. Have any of you ever heard of a man named Philip Nolan? Good. He is the fictional protagonist in a short story by Edward Everett Hale written in the mid-19th century titled The Man Without a Country. Now, does that ring a bell? Where were you guys freshman year English class? Nolan, a soldier and an officer, gets somehow tangled up in a fruitless and clouded insurrection. He is apprehended and at his trial curses his native land and loudly wishes that he may never hear the name of the United States ever again. The judge, a veteran of the Revolutionary War, is aghast and he grants him his wish and his sentence is to spend the remainder of his life on board various U.S. naval vessels. Is this ringing a bell now? A couple of them. With freedom of access to the men and the officers and freedom of access to the ship, but those with whom he sails are forbidden from ever divulging news of his homeland. He becomes known as Old Plain Buttons because the buttons on his uniform must be removed and replaced with buttons with no insignia. It's a hard story to read. When any ship that he is on sails back into port, he consents the proximity to land. But his transfer to an outgoing vessel takes place many miles out to sea, and he is never taken close enough to shore to actually see the land for which he comes to love and long. The study is a study of the harsh consequences of a foolish word. And it's a study in the growing ache and longing within a soul for some place to call home. But most of all, it's a story of utter, compelling loneliness of what it looks like to actually be a country of one. I'm going to read now from the larger passage beginning in chapter 3, verse 17. Again, it's on page 981 in your pew Bibles. Philippians chapter 3. 17 through 4, verse 1. Brothers, says the Apostle Paul, 
Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. That's our scripture reading for today. I want to set this up a little bit with some, uh, some background information about the city of Philippi. And you'll see a map here. Philippi was located in, the, in northern Greece. Um, it has an interesting status as a Roman colony. It was a Roman outpost in a conquered territory. It was situated on the trade route connecting Rome to the eastern part of the empire. It was designated as both a colony and a home for Roman military veterans. When you have standing armies of millions of men, you don't want them milling about the capital. You want to find a home for them far enough away where they can be loyal citizens and not hang around and cause a lot of trouble. Designated as a colony for veterans, its residents could claim a dual citizenship in both Philippi and in Rome. And that status would have real value in an unpredictable world. Citizenship was a reward for military service, and it was a rarity with its benefits conferred only on about 15% of the population. Citizenship conferred the right to marry, to enter into contracts, to have a political voice, and access to a legal umbrella under which one's civil rights could be protected. And if you go to Acts 22, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read you a portion. You get an idea of the weight of what citizenship meant. So Acts 22, beginning in verse 23. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him, that would be the Apostle Paul, to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. Anybody here ever been examined by flogging? I hope not. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, think about that. Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? 
And Paul explained succinctly, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, what did he say? But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. And so Paul writes a letter to this young church for which he's been imprisoned and beaten, and he's found a receptivity to the gospel here. And you can read about that in Acts 16 with the story of the Philippian jailer and the story of Lydia, the dealer in purple dye. And the receptivity to the gospel is amazing here in this city. And he begins to tease out the idea of a unique citizenship. And he begins doing that in chapter 1, verse 27, where it says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And this may be rendered, actually, only let your manner of life be worthy, may be rendered as behave, as citizens worthy of the gospel. These words would have had a connection to the residents of this Roman city for whom the rights and privileges of citizenship march side by side along with the obligations and responsibilities that are inherent in the status. So when we get to the end of Philippians 3, the idea of a citizenship in heaven has taken on a weight that would be understood loud and clear by his hearers. It's interesting, and this is the first of many little rabbit trails, that in 127 and in 321, the KJV uses the word conversation instead of citizenship. Conversation infers a dialogue, a shared set of parameters that define a relationship and provide a window into the true state of one's soul. So here's an example of that. Uh, this is from the KJV. In 1 Peter 3.16 says, Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. I like that partly because um, I'm partial to Matthew Henry's uh, commentary because it reads like a devotional to me, not as a technical journal. And he's responding to and interacting with the King James. But I also um, know that there are one or two among you for whom the King James carries a, a particular um, well-cultivated affection. So we are going to walk down through Chapter 3, verse 17, through 4, 1, verse by verse, and we're going to make some observations. You know, it's funny, I was just about to say, are there any questions before we begin? But I'm not teaching in an ABF now, and so um, I don't really want any questions at this point, <laughs> unless you can't resist. Although, I have to let you in on one thing. I told the children in children's music today to be on the lookout for a particular word a phrase that I would use before it was over. And if they heard it, they could raise their hand and maybe even say it back to me. So this is your notice, children. Don't tune out yet. You've got to 
wait to see if the magic word comes. Verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Let's begin with the exhortation to keep our eyes on those who walk according to a good example, those who have followed the path and example of Paul, who has proven by his stripes that his conversation is genuine and is worth following. But what if we turn that on its head for a moment? The flip side of the exhortation is that we might well take care to be a model for others to follow, that our conversation may provide a path forward for others to safely and productively walk in. And know this too, that most often the ones worth following, at least in my own experience, are not the ones whose conversations are honored and spotlighted and underscored. They are the ones whose citizenship is played out with consistency and with joy and with fruit all over the place. About which we'll have more to say as I conclude this morning. Let's go to verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. It is no wonder that Paul is caused to weep at this thought. Think about it. It is possible that one can claim the blood of Christ, can lay claim to the protection of the gospel, and yet walk as enemies of that very same gospel. That's what we're capable of, folks. There is such a thing as false citizenship. So we are to be careful in choosing whom to follow and to take care to be worthy of following. Maybe more importantly, though, is to take this as a warning to ourselves, knowing that but for the grace of God, we would surely find ourselves as an enemy of the cross of Christ. Verse 19. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. The falseness of the enemies of the cross is highlighted and underscored. In my original notes, I had amplified. It's not amplified. It's stated for exactly what it is. The end is not honor or insight or favor or approval or a wink and a nod. It's destruction. They worship themselves and are bound only to the satisfaction of their flesh. They take pride in the very things that should cause shame. They do not consider the cost of citizenship, but are mesmerized by the world and its attractions. In short, their conversation, if you will, reveals the dangerously shaky ground upon which they stand. Finally, note that Paul is repeating a warning here that he's issued before, that even now he pens with tears. False conversation has its price, and how he longs that this young church for which he has bled may find a safer, genuine, joy-filled ark of life and service for their Savior. And now the next verse, through the 
idea of citizenship, he proceeds to light the path. 320. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He begins, and this is where I'm just going to be proud of myself, he begins with the simple coordinating conjunction, I think. But he introduces the guardrail, the double yellow center line, the reality of the comfort of citizenship. For Paul, Roman citizenship was a card that he didn't play often, but he played it at need, and one that he embraced, and one that, as we have seen, his hearers would have understood. The syntax, for me, is a bit hard to figure out. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question I had was, so what is the it referring to here? Is it referring to heaven, or is it referring to our citizenship? The grammar is a little bit strained, to me at least, reading it in my translation. And for me, it's a reminder that the two things must not nor need not be separated. In our citizenship, we're given a strong place on which to stand. And that place is anchored to the bedrock of our true home in heaven. It's not ultimately in the world, as beautiful as it sometimes is. We are in the same boat as the saints described in Hebrews 11. These all died in faith, says the author, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Make no mistake, citizenship in that heavenly country is an exclusive citizenship. To claim it with any meaning is to fundamentally subordinate our allegiances that we have to the time and space of this world in favor of a deeper and more real citizenship, one that is harder to see sometimes, but one that is more real nonetheless. Let's move on to verse 21. Referring to this Savior, he says, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. When our bodies are described as lowly here in the text, would any of us choose to object and argue the point? What a preposterous thing that part of our benefit package as citizens in heaven is to be transformed from our lowly body into a body like our Savior's. The point is not only centered on a physical transformation, though the older I get, the better that sounds. It's a transformation into conformity with the Savior that we're waiting for. Our citizenship is here now, and it is waiting for us as well. There's another suggestion here. Paul is speaking of our citizenship from which we await. He does not refer to our bodies in the singular as in each of us. Rather, the infer inference is surely to our collective body. And that's worth thinking about for a little bit. 
in regards to our personal physical bodies, we may find restored vigor one day. We may find the flexibility and the energy of youth, the simple ability to breathe freely and without constraint. These are gifts worth waiting at the end of the driveway for, right? But what if this image of a conformed body could refer to our collective citizenship as well? Or maybe even more pointedly, what if we're awaiting a coming Savior who will transform our collective corporate body into a church with universal flourishing, where every voice with every song would be sung in safety and purity and gratitude from the throats of the aged among us right down to the garble of little babies, where long-winded middle-aged men who utter their utterances don't get all the attention, where honor and kindness and dignity will be characteristic of all of our conversation, where every relationship is sound and growing every day in loyal affection and true fellowship, where we would gladly live and die for one another, where our pride, and I love this image, where our pride in one another is our default, where we can sit in lawn chairs at a picnic or at a coffee break and pull photos out of our billfolds or our purses and show them off with pride to one another. But they're not photos of us or our family. They're photos of our dear, beloved friends, brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And I actually think it's easier to visualize a personal, transformed physical body, as strange as that sounds, than it is to visualize a church renewed, restored, focused, filled with joy at every turn. And it raises the question, <coughs> is this Savior for whom we wait able to bring about this kind of transformation? And the answer is from the text itself, is surely and irresistibly, yes. It must be so. After all, by his power, absolutely everything will be subject to his authority and his good plan for sinners like us. Verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul comes full circle here. He's able to think of this young church for what and who they are becoming, not just for who they have been. He's proclaiming here that there is no citizenship of one. These are those whom he loves. These are those that he longs for. These are his joy and crown. Now, that's some high-flying language, it seems to me. His exhortation, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. So I want to, let's do an exercise. As you look around the room this morning, and for the next 10 seconds, by the way, you can look and catch people in the eye if you need to, and it won't be rude. As you look around the room this morning, can we say along with the apostle, these are my beloved brothers and sisters. These are my joy and crown. 
These are my fellow citizens of a country whose reality we can taste together. Are we like Philip Nolan in the story that I referred to earlier? He was able to tell by the signs in the skies, by the advent of shore birds, by debris in the water, by the change in the current, by the change in the color of the water, by the smell of land. He was able to tell that he was approaching his long-awaited home. And he could be found in those times in the bow of the ship, straining his eyes forward that he might get a glimpse through the rolling mist, however briefly, of his native land, a home that tragically he would never be allowed to see. May we ever draw near to our true heavenly home, arm in arm, hand in hand, forever in the company of our fellow citizens, our joy and crown. It is interesting, by the way, in that short story, it's told with such attention to detail and such exquisite plausibility that the author, for decades after that, had to remind people that it was fiction. And people wouldn't believe him. It was too believable. So we are left with many questions, but out of mercy, we're only going to consider one. Now, Wes, a couple of weeks ago, would have uh, phrased the question like this, so what? But I'm a man of more words than that. And so I would phrase it as, how should we then live? To borrow a phrase from Francis Schaeffer, how should we then live? What difference should this make in how we go about our affairs? And I have a couple of application points. These are not the conclusion. That'll come a little bit later. Strive, side by side. According to Philippians 1.27, we are striving together side by side. There is no second-class citizenship in the body of Christ. We walk with one mind, one spirit. We stand firm together as one. For good or bad, folks, we are in this together. And what that means is that we make no distinction in our relative value, right? Young, old, rich, poor, wizened and seasoned, new and naive, fluent and high-minded in our speech or steeped in the vernacular. And you have to go no farther than the very next verses in chapter 4 to see what this looks like, to see this bedrock truth highlighted. Even Yodia and Syntyche, sisters in Christ, who are locked in disagreement with each other as chapter 4 begins, to such an extent that Paul has to put pen to paper to intervene in this potentially divisive thing. These two women are not described as problems to be solved. They're not described as divisive potentials for disunity in the church. How are they described? They're not described as festering or annoying persons. They're described as laborers as fellow laborers in the gospel whose names are in the book of life. That needs to be a light on our path as we walk together. Second applicational point, light the way for one another. Though the instruction in 317 is to choose carefully those that you would emulate, we can also consider the flip side which is to live your life in such a way that our brothers and sisters can reliably follow in your footsteps. Young or old, like it or not, 
people are watching. And without the light from our little reflected lamps, they might become lost. And surely we can't let that happen. Do we love them enough to walk carefully and with purpose? You know, after all, that is our job. And the third applicational point is hold hands while we wait. The letter to the Philippians is filled from stem to stern with words and phrases of waiting, of looking forward, like longing and await and how I yearn and longing for you and we await. Those phrases drive home a powerful and recurring theme in the letter. Though we can't often see our heavenly home very well, we strain forward, noting every sign along the way as we draw ever closer. And because we can't sing it, see it clearly, we sing to each other and for each other. If anybody draws encouragement from the sound of our collective voice as we sing, it's not because we're so fantastic at singing. It's because we're singing together, right? In one voice, with one mind, striving forward in song to light our lamps that we might be a testimony and a faithful guide to those who follow. And now we do have some conclusions. The first conclusion is, as you might have guessed, there is no citizenship of one. Have you ever wondered why it is that we don't baptize ourselves? In the great movie The Apostle with Robert Duvall, he does that exact thing. He baptizes himself, he commissions himself, he ordains himself to go about the work of the Lord by himself, for himself. Have you ever wondered why we don't take communion alone in the privacy of our rooms? Or why do we smile at Badger in the old animated movie who has his own song that he sings? He is, after all, the most antisocial of all of the forest creatures. And I'm not going to sing you his song, but I resonate sometimes to his lyric line, which says, I hate company. Whether I'm the host or the invited guest, I hate company. I hate company. Dining alone is best. We're probably not going to sing that anytime soon, I, I don't imagine. The absurdity of each of these things is plain to see, and so is the notion of a citizenship of one. Philip Nolan was sentenced to such a citizenship and discovered by nothing less than the mercy of God a growing ember of longing and life in his soul. And his loneliness grew into an overwhelming passion to be part of a citizenship that was bigger than himself. In his 50-year exile on board ship, there were occasional all-hands-on-deck moments where he got to man the cannons or carry the wounded. And for him, those became the moments that he lived for. He learned that there is an unspeakable privilege in striving side by side, walking in exile in the company of fellow exiles toward a land that they can all call home. His final words were these, and these conclude the little short story. He wrote at the, at the bottom of his prepared will, last will and testament, he wrote these words. Never was a man who loved his country more and deserved it 
less. We might well wonder, why is it that we so need one another? And of all the answers we could come up with, it is, as it always is, Scripture that explains it best. We are not a country of one because the God who created us is three in one. And the fellowship and honor and delight shared there is built into our DNA as a longing for a better, a different world. And consider this from John 17 to get a flavor of that. <clears throat> this is Jesus talking to his Father in a prayer that is so intimate it makes us feel as though we're eavesdropping. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you loved me. Second concluding thought here is this. Do we really long for our more real heavenly country? And we would all nod our head, right? Do we really? My brother Jim, and I'm going to tell you a story as we conclude, he has spent his long career building really, really nice homes for people all over the western suburbs of Chicago. He's probably one of the finest flawed men that I know. And every home that he built had a bit of himself pounded into it with every stroke of the hammer. He is without question the finest builder I have known. But through a series of circumstances, he now works for the world's largest apple and cherry orchard in the world out in Brewster, Washington. He's a construction manager tasked primarily with providing and managing the housing needs for the 2,000 guest workers that are flown in annually at harvest time. So basically what they do, what his job is, is to scavenge old double-wide trailers from wherever they can source them. And they haul them in into the orchards and they set them up. And they are flood damaged sometimes. They are worn up, worn out, beat up. They haul them out to the property, they put them together, and then they gut them. They remove the old moldy drywall. They redo the interiors. They paint the metal siding. They rehang the doors. They hook up the utilities. Now, the irony of the story probably should be dawning on you all by now, right? Quite a come down, right? But recently, as he was going through a punch list for one of these mobile units, he was sweeping the steps and double-checking that the power was on, that the septic system was hooked up. He noticed a car in the dirt driveway winding its way through the orchard and there in front of that double-wide trailer house that Jim was just wrapping up. A lady was inside, and she had her head down against the steering wheel, and she, it was evident to Jim that she was sobbing softly. He wasn't sure what to do but he approached the car and he softly tapped on the driver's side window and uh, he said, I'm sorry, ma'am, is there anything I can do for you? 
And here is her response. She said, I'm sorry. It's just so, so beautiful. And it's going to be my home. And I get to move in on Monday. Do you think that we could ever say that about our heavenly home? The irony was not lost on my brother who noted that in all his years, nobody ever, ever, ever wept with joy as he handed them the keys to their million-dollar mansion. But this woman did. And we may be sure that none of his customers ever found the joy that she did and probably never even came close. How I, speaking for me here, how I need to, how I want to long for my heavenly home in that way. The fact is, I am usually too busy. But there are a few of you out there who already live there in exactly the same way as the woman in this story. And you light the way for people like me to see it, to taste it, to wait for it, to dig our hands and our fingernails deep into the soil of heaven, even at the same time holding hands with you all as I do. What more could I ask? What more could we ask? The final exhortation, let's consider it a postscript of this passage, is that we wait well when we cultivate and nurture a love for one another, that we would ache as together we so wait. I'm not sure about this, but I think it was William Manchester who said that men on a battlefield will not die easily for the glory of the nation, but they will die for one another. And so it is with the Christian. At the end of the day, our greatest treasure is never an object or an abstract idea or a doctrine or an ethical system or a set of principles. It is a treasure embodied in a personal longing for a Savior who has become dear to us, a faithful witness, a triumphant hope, and a crown of love. Join me as I pray, and as I do, if the servers for communion and musicians could come up to the front, now is your moment. Father, we recognize that our affections are mixed, that these things are high above where we are. We don't always live there but we're called to it. Father, I thank you that the love which the Father has for the Son is granted and inclusive of your children as well. Father, could we live there? And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.